Welcome again to South Point. My name's Tanner. I'm on staff here. Glad that you've joined us here in person and online. Uh, just a little bit about South Point, so let me introduce you if you are brand new with us. Uh, the reason that we exist is we want everyone to experience God's unconditional love. Uh, this is a love that has changed my life, turned my life inside out, and I believe it can do the same for you and that uh, you will be glad if you let God do that in your life. Uh, that's why we exist. We want everyone to experience that. And uh, what we do right now is we're, we teach through Scripture uh, at this point in our service. And, and really this whole year what we're doing is we're aimed at revealing Jesus. Uh, we are actually teaching through a biography <clears throat> of Jesus, the Gospel of John, which is written by one of his closest friends, one of the four biographies about Jesus in Scripture. Uh, we believe that Jesus is this unconditional love of God personified, that we see this here in his person. And there's nothing better than this. We believe that he is worth revealing, uh, and that's actually why John wrote this whole book, this whole biography, so that we could learn who Jesus was and have him change our lives. And we've broken this, this uh, whole year up into different series, and, and actually right now, uh, we are starting a series called Signs. We just finished a series the last six weeks where, where you heard different people's stories and testimonies about how Jesus has changed their life. Right now, we're starting a series called Signs, and John is unique among the other gospel writers, the four gospel writers, in that he includes a specific number of miracles, and he also is unique because he calls them signs. Uh, he, he includes Seven miracles. Uh, why? Because seven is a picture. It's a number of completeness. He's pointing to this picture of who Jesus is, and he's saying he is completely God in flesh. He is completely Messiah. And he calls them signs because just like a sign that you would see or that I would see uh, on the road, on a building, a sign really points to something, a reality that is. It points to a and in this case, points to a truth. Each of these seven miracles that we see actually points to a truth in Scripture, and I believe that this truth actually changes your life and my life. These signs point to uh, something beyond just the event that happened in that day in the first century to something that, that has effect in the 21st century right now in our day-to-day -day life. So we're starting here with the very first sign. And the question is, what is this first sign about? Well, this sign is about, this first sign is about a topic that literally every person who has ever walked the face of our planet cares deeply about. It's, it's about something that everyone who has ever lived, everyone that I've ever met or encountered, wants. They want more of it, and when they have it, they don't want to give any, they, they, like, they don't want any of it to just like disappear or fade away. They want more and more of it, no matter what age you are, no matter what, what country you live in, you want what I'm talking about today, what this sign points to, and that is joy. Joy is a deep gladness, a satisfaction, and this sign that we're going to read about points at joy. So let's dive in. The setting here, John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. We'll read the first three verses right now. On the third day, 
a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, we look at this, and we say, okay, this is Jesus' setting of his first miracle, and I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. What he does is he actually produces more wine. And you may look at this and say, like, lack of wine at a wedding? Like, why is this the first sign? I mean, aren't there, like, more important things in this world? Hunger, disease, injustice. Why does he start here? And, and for that matter, Tanner, why do you think this is about joy? Well, two reasons. One is because we're talking about a wedding. And two, we're talking about wine. <laughs> we'll, start with, we'll start with wine. Wine was a picture of feasting, a picture of celebration. And not only that, when you open Scripture up and you read about wine, you will see that it talks about wine as a blessing from God, a blessing of prosperity, because with wine really came this idea that God was the one who blessed the vine that actually produced the wine. The coming of wine, the abundance of wine, is actually even associated with the coming of Messiah. We see wine bringing festivity and celebration. And then we see a wedding. And their weddings in that day were a celebration, more so than, than I believe that we can probably comprehend in compared to what we do. Their ritual started the day before the wedding. And the feasting, the celebration lasted for up to seven days, depending on the resources of, of their family. So what we see here in this setting is we see a shortage of wine. And when we see a shortage of wine, what we are really encountering is a shortage of joy, a joy that is going to run dry, a joy that is going to run out unless someone does something about it. And the mother of Jesus notices this and says, well, I've got just a person for this. He happens to be the king of joy. He happens to be the source of joy, the giver of joy. Jesus, will you do something about that? About a lack of wine here at this wedding? And we'll see what he does. Verse 4. His response to his mother, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. And then he says this, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Get this, how big these are. Each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. I mean, we are, we are talking 160 to, what, 240 pounds for each one of these. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said this, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. Yeah, we all know that. That's how weddings work. 
But you, he says, but you have saved the best till now. And what Jesus did here in Cana and Galilee was the first of the signs to which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and there they stayed for a few days. What Jesus does is he encounters a family situation where they are on the brink of embarrassment. They were on the brink of shame. And Jesus says, I'm going to take that shame, and I'm going to take that embarrassment, and I'm going to turn it into joy. And joy in that moment seemed to be in short supply. It seemed to be on back order. The inventory of joy seemed low. And Jesus did something about it. Joy would be there because Jesus was there. And that's what this sign points to. The question is, how does that impact you and where you are? Well, one of three ways, I think, depending on where you are in your, in your journey, in your faith journey. One, if you are brand new to faith, like you're exploring Jesus. One, I want to say welcome. I'm glad you're exploring Jesus. And there's nothing better than Jesus. And here's what I believe that this tells you about Jesus. That you should come and taste the joy of Jesus. Come and taste. Come and experience is what he is saying here. The joy of Jesus. If you notice in our story, what the story said is that you have saved the best till now. What he's, I, I believe that what this means and, and represents and implies is that the joy of Jesus is better than any other joy that you may have encountered in your life. Typically, though, we don't think of Jesus when we think of joy. Reading this book, rereading this book, called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Some of you may be intrigued by that title. I would recommend that you go pick this book up and read it, though you do not have to hurry to do so. And he uses the word happy here. But here's what he says. John Mark, Mark Comer writes, Most of us don't even think to look to Jesus for advice on how to be happy. For that, we look to the Dalai Lama or our local mindfulness studio or Tal Ben-Shahar's positive psychology class at Harvard. They all have good things to say, and for that I'm grateful. But Jesus is in a class of his own. Hold him up against any teacher, tradition or philosophy, religious or secular, ancient or modern, from Socrates to Buddha to Nietzsche to your yogi podcaster of choice. For me, Jesus remains the most brilliant, the most insightful, the most thought-provoking teacher to ever walk the earth. And he walks slowly. So rather than buckle up, settle in with him. And if you are exploring faith, my guess is that through your life you've sought out joy in any number of places. You've tried joy. You've tried, and you can probably think back to the seasons of your life. Yes, in that season, I tried this, and maybe I had joy for a little while in that season, but guess what? It ran dry, or another season of my life, I tried this, and I tried this. My encouragement is that you simply give Jesus a try. The book of Psalms 
has this great verse where it says, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. He's saying, come and actually experience this for yourself. You have nothing left, you have nothing to lose. If you say, okay, Jesus, I'm absolutely all in. I'm going to prioritize you. I'm going to prioritize worship. I'm going to put myself around people who are going to help me grow in my faith. Yes, I'm going to read your scripture. I'm going to seek out your truth. Yes, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, die. I'm going to try it. I'm going to taste and see that the Lord is good. I'm going to test it for myself. My, my encouragement is that you have nothing to lose. Come and, come and taste. Now, you may be at a place where you say, well, you know, I, I grew up in a religious household and, you know, we had this teaching that we had to go through and this class that we had to go through and this ritual and I did this whole thing. I kind of like know about Jesus. Well, there's a difference between knowing and experiencing. And if that's the case for you, if you knew and you went through this ritual stuff as a kid, my encouragement is that you come and you actually experience Jesus. You throw yourself into him. I mean, if you, you, you think that you have just because you experienced that when you were 12 years old or so, you went through the tradition and the teaching and all of that and you know about him, if you think that's all there is to Jesus without experiencing him, I have to say, you just don't really know him. I mean, my equivalent of that is saying, like, if that's the equivalent of you being like, well, you know what, I've tasted Italian food because I had this pasta that was sitting in my cupboard for four months, and then, you know, I, I kind of overboiled it, and it was a little spongy, and then I put some ragu on it. So, yeah, I've had Italian. I don't really like it. What I'm telling you now is go to Federal Hill. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. See that there's nothing better than the joy of Jesus. That nothing compares to the joy of Jesus. That nothing, that no other joy can hold up like his joy. You have nothing to lose. Now, if you've already said yes to Jesus, you may be in one of two places. First, you may be at a place where you are on a mountaintop. And if that's the case for you, I'm glad that you're there. And what I would say is that you simply need to pass on the joy of Jesus. And here's what the mountaintop looks like. You wake up and you are smiling. In fact, you, when you look at your life, you say, you know what? I see all the fingerprints of God all over all these circumstances of life. God is answering this prayer and this promise is coming to fruition. And I'm singing and I love that song that we sing at church. And I listen to that song that says yes and amen, referring to the promises of God. Because I just clearly see him saying yes. I clearly am saying amen. And by the way, that, that, that song is based on a scripture yes and amen, that Jesus is a yes and amen. You see all of these things and you say, you know, life is wonderful right now. And if that is you, my encouragement is that you pass on the joy of Jesus. C.S. Lewis says that joy is the serious business of heaven. And if that is where you are, my encouragement is that you make it your business to pass that on to other people. That is why we talk about things like learning people's names at the local coffee shop that you go to. That is why, quite frankly, that we talk about throwing a barbecue 
or a party in your own neighborhood. This is not just something for you to do. It's because you want to pass on the joy of Jesus. It is not just your joy. You're passing on joy that you have received from him, and you want other people to experience. So if that is where you are, my encouragement is that you pass it on. Do so intentionally. Do so intentionally by the way that you are generous, by the way that you encourage people. You care for people. You look out for them. Pass on that joy. Now, I say this and include this point, realizing that, quite frankly, probably a low percentage of people are in that place. And that most people are not in that place, quite frankly. So if you're not in that place, you don't need to feel guilty. Most people, a lot of people, are struggling right now. And you have stress, and you have fatigue, and you have anxiety. And you come and you say, okay, you're talking to me about joy. How do I even receive that message today? I mean, that's probably your reaction. And I know that because, one, I talk to a lot of people, and two, I'm reading the Psalms. This here is what I'm doing in my own prayer time. I'm, this is a book that is only the Psalms, and similar. it's similar to the book that we gave out several weeks ago on the Gospel of John. This is, takes one book of Scripture and just has the writing on one side and an open blank page on the other side. And what I'm doing is I'm writing out my prayers, echoing the prayers of the Psalms, because the Psalm, this is a prayer book of 150 Psalms, 150 prayers that people prayed to God. And almost half of those Psalms are what they call Psalms of Lament, where people are struggling and people are crying out to God and they're saying, God, yeah, but I'm struggling here. Yeah, God, what about this situation? Yeah, God, I'm crying out, but God, you said this. God, please come through for me. Almost half of them. And I think that that is a picture of, like, life, right? Echoing these prayers. It's a picture of life. So what do we do in that moment? What do we do when we absolutely feel like we have nothing left to offer? Nothing to bring to the table. Quite frankly, we feel dry ourselves. We feel empty ourselves. And it, as much as anything, we think, no, I can't, even I can't even come to God right now because of how I feel. What does this say to us? I think it says that we should come to him empty. Because if you are empty right now, you are probably in a better spiritual place than you realize. I can tell you that there's a worse place than, than empty. A worse place from empty is a place that I've been before. It's a place where you say, look, I've got, I've got this situation taken care of, and this is going pretty well, and this is going all right. So Jesus, I just need your help just in like one little area right over here. Can you help me with that? In essence, what I'm saying is, God, my... my my, my jar is mostly full. Will you just like come top me off over here? 
No. You're in a better spiritual place. When you come, you come empty. Say, God, I need you. I need your joy in my life. And by the way, when Scripture talks about this joy, when it, Scripture has a lot to say about the joy of Jesus, that it, he's saying that, that it is durable. It is a joy that is sturdy enough to handle all of those situations that you are facing in life. In fact, the audacity and the boldness to which Scripture talks about the joy of Jesus, to me, is like astounding. I mean, some of the things that Scripture says about the joy of Jesus and suffering, like one of them is from... Uh, the book of James, this is Jesus' brother writing, and he says this, he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Pure joy when you face trials? Because you know that the, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Remarkable things to say about joy and suffering. And quite fr frankly, you look at this, you're like, what, what is he even, what's he talking about? How can you have joy when you are facing trials of many kinds? The wide range of trials that life will throw at us. How can you have joy? Well, one, I think what he's talking about here is not a joy that is built on a circumstance or a situation. He is talking about a He's talking about a joy that is the state of your soul. And you say, well, yeah, but, okay, but how in those situations, in those settings, when life is throwing like the kitchen sink at me, how can I be joyful? How can I be joyful when suffering? How do I know that this joy of Jesus is durable enough when all those other joys fade away and evaporate and run dry? How do I know? Well, the answer, the answer is in the water into wine story. Did you see Jesus' response to his mother in that story? After, after she says, they've run out of wine, and he says, why do you involve me? His next line is, my hour has not yet come. You see that? My hour has not... What, what is that? What does it even mean? My hour? Well, if you read the Gospel of John, his hour meant his suffering. His hour meant his crucifixion on a cross. His hour meant his death. What this means is that Jesus was not just a teacher, though he was a great and fantastic teacher. What this means is that Jesus came for a specific reason, and that is to give his life for you and for me on a cross. And he realizes here, when his mother asks him about turning water into wine, he realizes that that request, that this miracle is going to be a first domino of sorts. That when he does this miracle and that other people see it, when he starts to do these other miracles and other people start to see him healing people and feeding people, and even raising people from the dead, he realizes that word is going to get out, that people are going to start making great claims about who this man is, that he is actually God in flesh, that he is actually Messiah, and he knows what's going to happen. That is going to prompt jealousy and anger from the religious leaders that is ultimately going to drive him to the cross. He knows that. So when he turns water into wine, what he is saying is, I'm going to give you joy through my suffering.
yeah, it's going to result in me being crucified. <laughs> but guess what that's going to result in? That's going to result, that is going to result in the resurrection that I'm going to conquer death. And in fact, you go on, and John later writes at the very end of Scripture, he points ahead to the future, and he says, guess what's going to happen at the end? You, tr you trust in Jesus, you know Jesus, you love Jesus. There's going to be a time where you see him face to face, and there's going to be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. There's going to be even no more death, he says, in that moment. You see, the reason that you and I can have joy in the present no matter what life throws at us, is because Jesus himself suffered and he maintained joy through it all and he gives us a joy, that we have joy through his suffering. You see on the cross, the reason we can have joy is because he mourned. There's going to be a day where there's no more mourning. But it was in that moment when he was being crucified that he mourned. There's going to be a day where there's no more crying. But guess what? In that day, he cried out. There's going to be a day where there's no more pain. But in that day when he was crucified, he was in pain. And there's going to be a day when there's no more death. But guess what? He died. the reason I, that you and I, that we can actually come to the one who gives us a durable, sturdy joy, a joy that will last. The reason that we can come when we are empty is because he emptied himself for us. So my encouragement is that you come empty and that you let him fill you up. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for the gift of your life, the sacrifice of your life for, for us. We do declare right here that there's nothing better than you, nothing better than your good news. We praise you for your joy. We thank you for your sacrifice. God, if there are those here who are watching or here in person who are just ex exploring faith in you, I pray that you give them the courage to take the step to taste and see that you are good, to experience that. God, if there are those here who are on a mountaintop, may you use them as dispensers of your joy, of your joy. Give them opportunities to spread that joy and encouragement and generosity and love. And God, if there are those here, and I know there are who are empty right now, and can just barely utter one word of prayer, God, I pray that they utter the word help, that we utter the word help. We declare our dependency, our need for you to fill us up. not just top us off. We thank you, Jesus. That's in your name I pray. Amen.